Welcome back to Design Emergency, the podcast and platform that Alice Rostern and I started about three years ago to document what design can do to make the world a better place for every human, for every species, and for all ecosystems. Every other week, we interview somebody that is a protagonist in this particular search. And this week, we have with us a special guest out of Sydney, Australia. It's Professor Vina Sahajvala, who is a great material scientist. And as the urgency of the climate crisis intensifies, it becomes increasingly evident that the solutions required must touch every single moment of the production and use process, materials included. Vina Sahajvalla stands at the forefront of this movement, already spearheading the development and implementation of such solutions on an industrial level. Vina's journey began in India, where she faced, among others, the challenge of being the sole woman in her university's engineering program. Continuing her studies in both Canada and the United States, she now resides in Sydney, Australia, where she holds the esteemed position of Professor of Material Sciences at the University of New South Wales, where she is also the founding director of its SMART Centre for Material Research and Technology. Her deep passion for reusing and recycling waste has earned her the playful nickname of Rubbish Cop from her daughter. However, her commitment transcends her personal life, and her primary focus lies in finding innovative ways to transform waste into valuable raw materials, effectively reducing carbon emission in industrial production processes. One of her notable creations is Green Steel, which has such a compelling name, a pioneering polymer injection technology that has successfully repurposed millions of rubber tires to replace coal in steel manufacturing. This and so much more. And in today's podcast, we will delve into Vina's inspiring work and explore her great achievements in waste reduction. So, Vina, first of all, after this long introduction, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you so much, Paula, for having me on Design Emergency. I feel very humbled and honored. And oh, I'm don't be humbled. Forward. This is like a, a chat among friends. <laughs> so we are so honored to have you. So let me start by asking you, what inspired your passion for reusing and recycling waste materials? You know, it's a really interesting question because I think in so many different ways, uh, when you grow up in a city like Mumbai in India and, you know, you do see waste everywhere, um, you know, part of that kind of, um, I guess, something that ignites in you on so many fronts, the environmental and the social, um, that kind of, you know, makes you think that, you know, this this waste that, uh, you know, everyone seems to be throwing away um, because, of course, you know, you can live in a capitalist society where there's that big difference between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and then, you know, everyone takes products for granted and we just assume there's infinite resources that are available, you know. But something in my heart always said to me right from the early days that um, this doesn't sit well with me. Because one, we're kind of just taking our planet for granted. We're just, you know, also just expecting that there are so many disadvantaged members in our community 
who perhaps, you know, um, are doing such an important service, but are perhaps not getting, um, you know, that recognition um, in, in terms of the work that they do, in terms of collecting uh, those end-of-life products, you know, taking it across to recycling centers and manufacturing centers. Sometimes they make things themselves even, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And what, what if we could, you know, ask those important questions socially and, and you know, kind of get ourselves to, to think about it and bring that in the forefront of, of our consciousness, you know? And mm. absolutely, it's so right. And that's why we have so much to learn from many more countries that we don't think we have to learn from. So could you, I mean, since we have you here, let me ask you the question that we should explain to everyone. Could you please explain the concept of a zero waste circular economy and why it's mm. important in today's world? Yeah, when we think about zero waste circular economy, we've got to start to look at it from the context of the fact that if we make the effort to make sure that every end of life material or product is not seen as a waste, but rather is seen as a raw material for remanufacturing another product and that every material can be brought back to life in many different forms. It doesn't have to come back to life in the same way we think about recycling of like to like conversion. Not every product can be converted back into the same product again. But to achieve zero waste, to achieve circular economy goals and, and you know, the goals that, that we all know uh, we have to for the sake of our planet, uh, we need to be able to see every bit of material, every molecule in every product as something that can be remanufactured into, into another product. If designs change, well, yep, so be it. We need to be able to then start to look at how in a new design paradigm, we'll be able to bring in those materials, but think at the molecular level, not see it as a piece of you know, glass or a piece of plastic, but rather to see at that fundamental micro level what all these materials contain. And this whole movement has various touch points, right? Because there's the touch point of the material engineering, the touch point of the corporations and production companies that have to implement it before and after the life of the object. And then there's the, also the, the touch point of people, of citizens, right? I don't like to use the word consumers because it already implies too much. So it really is a matter of re-educating the whole ecosystem. Which of these touch points do you work on mostly? Mm. So, you know, from my point of view and, and our center, Smart Center at UNSW, we've got, you know, a whole ecosystem of different industry partners. We've got ecosystem of local councils. That's your local government. That's basically collecting, um, you know, these end of life damaged products from our homes, from our offices. So if you can imagine that at various levels, whether it's the local industries, whether it is the local um, councils, government groups, in all of these cases, you know, we as, you know, citizens of the world have to start by doing the right thing. And so our relationships, our partnerships are such that we want to laterally integrate these different um, collaborations and in kind of enabling those collaborations to take place. 
you know, we might be connecting with one, um, you know, industry partner in a particular industry that is making a ceramic tile, but in that entire supply chain could be basically other organizations that can be connected because our science and our technological advances at the Smart Center have shown that it is possible that if we laterally integrate these different types of raw materials into product formats, and if we understand that sitting in the middle of all of that is manufacturing high quality products, high performance products, then Overlaying on top of that, of course, is the fact that there are so many organizations across the world who want to do the right thing, want to use products that are, you know, made from sustainable materials that are going to be sustainable. But to enable one to access that, you need to have this ecosystem to work together. Absolutely. So you have to have an ecosystem of allies, implementers, believers, right? I'm thinking yes. of of, yes. of your smart center as being, you know, those terrible uh, those terrible acronyms, you know, B2B or A2B, academia to business to government. But um, let's move to some of your proud inventions. Green steel. I love that. I love that name. It's really, it, it, it conveys so much. And you have recycled, as we said, millions of rubber tires to replace coal in steel production. So how does this technology work? And what impact does it have on reducing carbon emissions? Mm. Yeah, Paola, really, really very profound question, because I think to me, you know, what you've asked there is about that connectivity between, on one hand, we're talking about recycling and manufacturing. And that's really, you know, as I think about, you know, all the benefits of green steel, one of the important outcomes, in addition to recycling tires, of course, is the opportunity to lower our carbon footprint. And if we want to lower our carbon footprint, we have to challenge the traditional raw materials. So if you think about coal as a traditional feedstock in the making of steel, the alternative, the sustainable alternative of using waste rubber tires, basically at the molecular level, um, allows us to not only deliver that important element that carbon that is so important in the process of making steel, this is solid carbon atoms um, that are essential in any steel making process. But in addition, rubber tires also deliver hydrogen molecules. And so under the right conditions, our technology was able to show that by liberating these elements, carbon and hydrogen, under the right conditions at the right time, we were able to bring about those types of reactions that of course then take us to the product, which is the metallic product. So polymer injection technology is about injecting these tire crumbs and those materials at the right temperature will then be able to convert that iron oxide into iron, liberating more and more metal which then, of course, becomes steel. In order to do so, you probably had to prototype machinery that did not exist. I mean, at the beginning, it might have been a lab test, but then you had to implement it at scale. So I can imagine that SMART is not just a cute lab in a university. Is it also plants? 
Oh, I, I love it, Paula, how you sort of say that. Yeah, we're not just a cute uh, little lab in the uni because you're so right. You're absolutely right. You know, you can you can kind of, you know, think about, you know, an academic environment where, you know, you might be doing a lot of these lab experiments. But even to begin doing lab experiments, you know, to your point, you know, to design equipment. And I remember in the early days of Green Steel, to even to visualize how you might do the experiment to prove that it works and why it works. Those experiments had to be done, but there was no standard equipment to even do no. that. <laughs> and polymer injection is not a walk in the park, so we know that. <laughs> uh, anyway. It was, it was yeah. like, you know, going from that conceptualization where the science that of course you know one might say okay in my head it looked like well okay I could make this work but then when you actually come into a lab and even start to design your experiments yeah. you know, that is a challenge and then of course when you want to take that to the next step and go and talk to industry and talk about industrialization and industrial trials and they basically you know, of course, rightfully, even if all the experiments are extremely convincing in a lab and the science has been done. And I remember in the early days, we'd even won a Eureka Science Prize for for our research. Um, that, of course, was still not going to be enough when you start to think about your all important question around industrialization. That means to be able to deliver this solution at the practical level even if you want to do a single trial in industry you know your industry partners have to come with you on that journey absolutely you have to deliver and you have to prove mm. yeah that's, that's yeah. exactly right so yeah more kudos to you because that's a big deal so let me move to another great name green ceramics and it's you've been in, so you've been involved in recycling clothes and glass into green ceramics for construction and interiors so now it's like besides big construction companies now you have to convince interior designers they're the toughest anyway how do these recycled materials compare to traditional ones in terms of quality and sustainability so you take, first of all, if you can explain a little bit the process behind green ceramics. Yeah, um, so absolutely. I mean, with green ceramics, the goal very much was to be able to say that, you know, if we want to be able to replace, you know, traditional stone that goes into making our, you know, tiles and, um, you know, wall tiles to, to furniture pieces and kitchen bench tops and all of these things, we tend to think about stone as the regular material to use. But again, the question is what came to my mind was, but wait a minute, we, we've got so much waste glass. And, and if we actually have all of this glass that when we use it, you know, we know how strong glass is. I mean, it's used in making tabletops. It's used in, you know, architectural applications. It's used in so many different applications. Why, when it does reach the end of its life, Again, we literally, uh, you know, kind of undervalue it. You know, maybe we sort of think that, well, you know, it has to go to landfill because it's too complicated. Um, you know, in some instances, glass can be laminated structures where, you know, if we're thinking about all the, all the safety glass, for example, in our automotive waste 
um, wear glass, of course, is there to keep us safe in case of an accident, windscreen glass, for example, window glass. I mean, we should not be thinking about such a beautifully designed, high-performance glass as waste just because when it gets damaged in an accident, it can't serve that purpose. It can't go back into that function again. But fundamentally, that material glass is still you know, able to come back to life in a different form. So bringing that glass into the form of these green ceramic tiles where we combine that with waste textiles, you know, creating the opportunity to bring together two very different materials in a highly integrated system and this product allows us to take advantage of, you know, those properties of glass. And of course, through our green ceramic manufacturing process, uh, we of course have to apply temperature and pressure, but in, in the system, we never melt glass. So it's not a glass melting furnace. It's actually a system that allows us to create these highly integrated structures between glass particles so of course we've got these fine particles of glass and textile and of course as you can imagine uh, this is where you know the engineering properties are delivered because textile is a polymer in many instances with synthetic materials um, that then play a part in creating this bonded structure because the material it's so new, but also so ancient. Do you ever get inspired by um, old traditions, old techniques? Do, how granular do you yourself get in the design of these tiles? As a scientist and as an engineer myself, you know, when I interact with, um, you know, people who come from the design world, I can see from their perspective that, you know, creating spaces where people can interact and talk um, and telling the story around what went into making those tiles. So, you know, whether whether there was waste mattresses, uh, for example, you know, the, the waste mattresses that we've been using, of course, mostly predominantly that white color gives you beautiful, beautiful plain white um, color tiles. But in some instances, we put in, um, you know, sporting uh, uniforms from local sports clubs and they then uh, mean that people can kind of come back if it's in a community space people come back and relate to um, you know on that kitchen uh, area you know kids and families can come back and relate to the fact that oh there's an orange there that orange came from my sports club you know so it's it's the ability for us to listen to what the designers want that space to look like and the fact that in those spaces, communities feel a part of it um, has been really lovely to listen to how designers, you know, are thinking about these beautiful spaces for people to to really feel connected, whether it's through their uniforms or or their broken bits of glass, you know. And what about you? Do you ever get involved in the design of the tiles or you just let them happen the way they happen, depending <laughs> on the raw materials? Oh, you know, I mean, the nice thing is that I feel so privileged that at the Smart Center, in fact, you know, our team members, you know, everybody's got different passions. Um, some of them who love getting into the design side of things will absolutely you get know, involved. Yes, so you don't have to. 
and and they get and they of course you know will educate the rest of us going now this is what this will look like and we we love the fact that there is that opportunity whether you're a scientist or whether you're an engineer or you just love design that we can all come together as a team um you know and and bring these products to life um so yeah we're really we're really lucky <laughs> So for any one of these technologies there needs to be an infrastructure right an infrastructure of waste collection and then waste delivery to your plants and uh and then to processing of this waste and making into objects or into raw materials that then get delivered so it's a big infrastructure and one of the toughest nuts to crack and infrastructures to crack is the one of the electronic waste right we know that it's a real problem it's a pollution problem it's a labor problem it's uh, all sorts of, of types of problems and you have tackled also also this issue with the creation of this micro factory model that you launched in 2018 and i would like to understand what are the key innovations behind it and what does it do how are you going to implement what is a microfactory and what does it do and where is it going to happen mm. so you know i mean you, you you know you've asked a very important question around e-waste there are so many different elements if if you think about it at the elemental level whether it's in our batteries or in our circuit boards um different kinds of metals different kinds of oxides each of these they might be present in smaller volumes but they are absolutely critical materials. And so we can't just kind of again go, well here's a pile of all kinds of batteries. Well that wouldn't help us solve the problem if one of the batteries that we're after with nickel metal hydride batteries if I use one example, how are we going to go after those important elements and rare earths um that are present in these in these kinds of systems. So microfactories are designed to be modular. so that you can really see every stage of that journey and the first stage of the journey has to be about knowing you know what kind of batteries are coming in if that's what we're studying because that family of batteries even though we call it by just one big name called batteries but as we know there are so many different types of batteries so the initial work with that first module is very much about you know recognizing knowing different kinds of batteries that are coming into into the pile but also if i now flip to the other end as to what what module would you want to be able to go after a particular metal so if you want to go after and produce cobalt as a metal out of these lithium ion batteries somewhere in that journey you've got to be very clear that if i've got my lithium ion batteries and if i know that i've got access to a certain amount of cobalt in there that finishing stage that generates cobalt requires a different module so you can see why i'm talking about it as a modular solution because each module does its own job and a microfactory is always designed to be such that it's connecting various parts of the ecosystem and that supply chain so if i'm somebody who's in the business of collecting it i might be able to sort out and do the physical side of it but if i'm someone at the end where i want to be able to now generate those important metals then i need to have a completely different module and this is why knowing you know what modules you want 
what is the job of each of these modules is important. You can't assume all these functions are going to happen in one grand furnace, but rather if you break it up into different modules, then everyone can play a part and be connected in that supply chain. And in doing so, what we have generated is a decentralized solution that can be distributed in many, many different regions. That's what I was thinking about. So in an ideal entrepreneurial world, what you would supply the world is the modules of the microfactory, right? So the service is not the end product, but rather this implementation of a new infrastructure. Very interesting. So the idea is that you could provide different countries and different locales with this. Yeah, but underpinning all of that has to be, you know, the, the scientific approach by which you are going to make those important materials. Because for a lot of people who then will look at a particular module, also might think, okay, well, I can do one function in a particular module, but what if I want to expand? What if I want to be able to bring in, you know, another step in the process? So to be able to be participating in that ecosystem. Plug it in. So when you say microfactory, how big is each one of these factories? <laughs> I was like, when you say micro, I'm like, okay, does it fit in my closet or is it instead like a football field? What is micro? Yeah, I, I, I really love it that, that you've asked that all-important question, Paula, because... <laughs> how big is it? You know, how big is it? I mean, when we set up our very first one a few years ago, and that is still something that we use as a pilot facility at UNSW in Sydney, that's 50 square meters. But the goal oh, okay. is... Yeah, it's not It's not that... It's a New York apartment. <laughs> yeah, 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 you could have it in your apartment. may not be quite as small to fit in your closet, but... <laughs> But this is the point, right? I mean, you can then also design it so that you can have each module also at the right size and the right functions. And scientifically and commercially, why this makes sense is because these are very valuable metals. If they are valuable metals, you can make it on a smaller volume. And of course, they are high value materials. So it's sort of linking it back to getting it away from the traditional thinking that everything only works if you've got economies of scale. But rather, if I flip it around and go, no, actually, in this case, it's about economies of purpose. So good. Thank you. That is a perfect way to segue into the next questions, which is, of course, you speak, you know, your work is addressed to corporations, to engineers, to policymakers, to governments. But when you talk about economy of purpose, do you also want to have a conversation with the wide public? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've you've taken the most important thing right out of my mouth, um, my heart, you know, the going right back to in other days when I was reflecting on my early childhood in in Mumbai, um, you know, it has to be about the public good. I mean, you know, we can't just assume that, you know, if we're talking about batteries that we're just gonna allow, you know, a pile of batteries somewhere in an area to just pile up because we know that these could potentially catch fire. So, you know, public engagement and community engagement is such an important thing because when you relate that back at the local level, people understand why it is so important to do the right thing 
if I'm, you know, going to take my battery waste, I don't want to just throw it in my normal bin, for example, my old batteries, because there's a potential fire hazard if that goes into the rubbish truck that comes and collects waste. So when when people are, again, part of the journey and understand why it matters that we all have to do the right thing, where there are appropriate drop-off points for different types of end-of-life products, that means that people can also see the positive, that their action has, has got a significant outcome, not only from you know, an environmental point of view that that is the right action, but it's also from a social point of view that, you know, we're using these products, our batteries, for example, electronics, you know, we simply can't afford to discard it and think that it's just usual rubbish and we're just going to put it away in a pile because, of course, you know, they can they can catch fire, for instance. So these are the kinds of reasons why I believe it is so important that when we related to the public when we talk about it. And of course, a lot of our work here in Australia has been showcased in the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, for example, which which I think to me, you know, has been so, so good because we do get a lot of people in the public who then talk to us around, you know, how, you know, they can see the connectivity between science, between technology, between what matters to to the environment and how, of course, we all need to play a part uh, in, in addressing it. some of these challenges. True. So what are the key obstacles to that we need to overcome to enact a truly circular, mm. not only economy, but life? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I mean, we, we have to start to think in a, in a way that our solutions are designed at a local and a regional level. So when we talk about circularity and what it means in, in our region, because again, we're not going to take different kinds of waste glass and batteries and textiles and, and just kind of take it over long distances and, and assume that we're going to throw it in somebody else's backyard. Of course not. You know, when we think about solutions, they've got to be local, they've got to be regional. That means you know, our, our local um, agencies, our government authorities who have that responsibility can work with local businesses and create those solutions so we can see local jobs being created by transformation of waste into value. And that waste into value proposition um, can be quite exciting when you can imagine that micro factories, you know, have got a lower entry cost. So the barrier in terms of that cost means that it, it is a lot more accessible, a lot more affordable than traditional uh, factories would have been. And so I think to me, you know, the next frontier as we continue on our journey is to be able to say, how do we enable regional uh, solutions to play a part? And of course, when the products are made locally, so for example, with our green ceramic tiles, to be able to have that made in a regional town in Nowra, not too far away from Sydney, but a lot of those products then can be utilized um, in, in communities, whether you live in Sydney or in the surrounding regional communities. So I think to me, that's really the kind of ecosystem around regional um, circular economies, but it's gotta be about circular solutions, because if it is a solution with a purpose, technology with a purpose, then you can actually demonstrate that it fulfills not only the scientific 
you know, foundations of why that product works, but also from a technological point of view. And then if the purpose is to be able to put a green ceramic product into a flooring application, it's got to be fit for purpose. And that's why I like to think about our work as economies of purpose. And then it becomes immediately also social and cultural, which is in a way what Alice and I aim to get to with our podcast. So from your mouth to every policymaker's ears. <laughs> and thank you so much, Vina. So today we have a design emergency spoken with Professor Vina Sahajvala about her inspiring work and her advancements in waste reduction and also her unwavering dedication to combating the climate emergency. So it was such a pleasure to have you here, Vina. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Paolo, for having me on the show. And we will hear and see you all with the next episode of Design Emergency. Thank you for listening. <laughs>